0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of Jonah, where we're going to be picking up in verse 17 of chapter 1, and then reading through all of uh, chapter 2. Jonah, as you may remember, if you were with us last week, or if you just are familiar with the story, Jonah is on the run from God, and in our passage today, God catches up with Jonah. So Jonah... Chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2. Would you follow along with me as we read from God's Word? This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Beginning in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now as we consider God's Word together. Father, we ask that You would help us now to hear Your Word with ears of faith. That we would believe what it is that You have spoken. And in believing, we would find life. Father, we do confess that in the midst of the trials and afflictions of this life, You prove faithful you're always sure and steadfast in Your ways. And so we ask, God, and we have even the great hope today that You would sustain us in the faith as we consider Your Word. That Your Word would be like food for our souls. That You would nourish us even now to stand firm until the end. And pray, God, that You would keep me from error. And I pray that You would give us discernment. That we would hold fast to the truth. Father, even as we have sung and rejoiced that You hold fast to us in Christ. We pray, God, that You would do this now for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we come to the part of the book that everyone thinks they know. Jonah in the belly of the fish. The British preacher G. Campbell Morgan once said, men have been staring so hard at the great fish, they have failed to see the great God. And friends, I pray that would not be true of us this morning. There are naturally a number of questions that flood our minds when we read Jonah chapter 2. What kind of fish was it? How did Jonah survive for three days in his belly? Was he conscious the entire time? What did he eat? What did he drink? Our natural curiosity can't help but ask those kinds of questions. And again, it's natural. And yet, the text of Jonah chapter 2 is entirely uninterested in answering curiosity's questions. Entirely uninterested. There are 48 verses in the book of Jonah and a grand total of three of them refer to the fish. What's more, those three verses are surprisingly sparse on the details, all we know is the fish swallowed Jonah, 117. Jonah prayed while in the fish's belly, 2.1. And then the fish spat Jonah back out upon the grand, uh, on the land, 2.10. That's it. That's all we know. 48 verses, and three of them refer to the fish. From the text's point of view, the fish is actually rather ho-hum. Instead, what the text presents as astounding is the one controlling the fish. The Lord God of heaven. That's what jumps off the page when you read this chapter. Not that a fish swallowed a man, but that God twice commanded a fish and twice the fish obeyed. Men have been staring so hard at the great fish they failed to see the great God. Now of course, the question that most people ask is not about the details, but about the history. Did this really happen? And again, the text deals with that question plainly. Yes. The events of Jonah, too, occurred as the Bible records them. It should get your attention, friends, that the text presents this entire episode in a rather matter-of-fact way. The author of Jonah is not as concerned as the modern skeptic is about whether or not this happened. The author of Jonah just says, this is what happened. From Scripture's perspective, the key question is not, did this occur? The key question is, do you know the God who made it occur? That's the Bible's question. And so, let me just speak to this right from the start. The only reason to dismiss this passage is a prior conclusion that miraculous events are not possible. It's the only reason to dismiss Jonah 2. If you don't believe in God or in, the power, or in God's power to work in supernatural ways, then of course you will find Jonah 2 preposterous, just like you will find the rest of the Bible preposterous. But if you acknowledge the reality of God which, by the way, is unmistakably clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's an unmistakable conclusion. If you acknowledge the reality of God, then why wouldn't He be able to work in supernatural ways like the one we find in Jonah 2? He is the Creator of everything that we see. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. His power knows no limits. His ways are higher than our ways. And while He doesn't normally work by supernatural means, the Bible clearly affirms that at times He does. And so, if you're here this morning and you're not sure about this whole fish swallowing a man thing, then I would ask you to consider the greater reality of the Bible. The reality that there is a God in heaven who does in fact intervene in His world. And God intervenes in His world in order to save sinners and reveal His glory. Please, don't get so focused on the fish that you fail to see the God commanding the fish if you're unsure this morning, if you are questioning, if you have doubts about whether or not any of this occurred, the truth that the Bible actually demands you consider is not did this happen, but do I know the God who made it happen? Do you know Him? Do you trust your life to Him? Do you acknowledge that it's His world and you belong to Him, either in faith or one day in judgment? Do you know Him? I pray that you would see God from His Word today, and in seeing Him, that you would entrust your life to Him. Don't stare so hard at the fish that you miss the great God. So, with confidence in God's Word, let's, let's turn now to consider the events of this important chapter. You'll notice that the passage has a clear structure. It begins and ends with the command of God. Chapter 1, verse 17, God commands the fish. Chapter 2, verse 10, God commands the fish. Then in the middle, you have thanksgiving to God. Verses 2-9. through 9. It's a psalm from Jonah. And if you think about it, friends, a psalm is the most fitting response from the prophet. Jonah ran from God. He was tossed into the sea where he was sure to die, only to be delivered by the act of God. What do you do in in response to something so marvelous? You praise God. That's what you do. You compose a psalm of thanksgiving. You sing a song of praise. You see, it's actually very fitting that the passage is taken up with thanksgiving to God. What else has Jonah to do except praise and give thanks? So the passage has three parts. Command of God, thanksgiving to God, and then command of God. Three parts. And from that structure, I'd like to draw your attention to four pictures of God's work in saving Jonah. First, we'll see the wonder of grace. That's the opening verse. Chapter 1, verse 17. Second, we'll note the kindness of God's discipline. That's verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2. Third, we'll note the depth of God's mercy. That's verses 5 to 7. And finally, we'll look at the declaration of God's greatness. That's verses 8 and 9. Four pictures of God's work to save Jonah. Let's begin then with the wonder of grace, the wonder of God's grace. If you think about it, verse 17 of chapter 1 is a rather abrupt interruption in the narrative. By the end of chapter 1, every indication we have is that Jonah's life is over. He's defied the command of God. He ran from the Lord. And he has deservedly been tossed into the waves of God's judgment. If you were reading this book for the very first time, you would have no hope left for Jonah. None. He's guilty before God. And he deserves what it appears he is now going to get. He deserves death. And that's where verse 16 of chapter 1 leaves us, with Jonah's life virtually over then verse 17 comes out of nowhere. And it interrupts Jonah's descent to death. Listen again to verse 17. And notice the sudden sovereignty of grace. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Most people assume that the fish is part of God's judgment, but the opposite is true, friends. The fish is the vehicle of God's grace. God uses the fish to save Jonah from death. And understand, this happened entirely apart from Jonah's ability, and certainly without any reference to Jonah's merit. Jonah was hopeless and helpless in the heart of the sea. He had no ability to save himself. What's more, Jonah deserved to die. He defied the Lord. God could have allowed Jonah to sink to his grave, and he would have been entirely just to do so. The book could have ended in verse 16, and no one has a claim against God, least of all Jonah. And yet, God intervenes. The Lord commands the fish to snatch Jonah from death and then return him to the land of the living. It's almost like resurrection, is it not? A man condemned to die is saved by grace and raised up again to new life. It's almost like resurrection. And why did it happen? Why did God choose to spare Jonah's life? Why did God do this? The answer, friends, is because He wanted to. God chose to give grace to Jonah because God is gracious. He saved Jonah not because of anything in Jonah, but because that's the kind of God He is. You see, Jonah experiences firsthand the truth at the heart of this book. God will give grace to whom He will give grace, and God will show mercy to whom He will show mercy. And that, brothers and sisters, is one of the most helpful effects of this chapter. One of the most helpful fruits. The clarity of grace in Jonah's rescue Delivers us from our sometimes anemic views of grace. Far too often, I'm afraid, we speak of God's grace as something similar to niceness. He does nice things that go beyond what we could do for ourselves. Grace is that little extra that God adds where we lacked. But as this chapter so clearly teaches us, that view of grace is woefully too small. Grace isn't niceness. And it certainly is not that little piece we couldn't quite provide. No, grace is divine intervention. Grace is divine intervention that overturns our helpless and hopeless situation. Grace doesn't add the little extra that we couldn't quite get to. Grace accomplishes what we could not and would not do. And what's more, the reason for grace is always the same as it was for Jonah. It's because that's who God is. He gives grace to whom He will. And if we add any other reason, our merit, our ability, our fruitfulness, our strategic impact on the globe, if we add any other reason, then we lose what grace is. In fact, we lose grace itself. It's not just niceness. Grace is divine intervention that sovereignly rescues us from what we deservedly could not escape on our own. It's enough to leave you in wonder, is it not? Verse 17. Verse 17 should make us stop and marvel that there is a God in heaven who shows this kind of grace to such undeserving people. God does not change. The God He was in verse 17 is the God He remains today. And in case you're thinking Jonah knew something better than you do, brothers and sisters, remember that your testimony as a Christian is even more astounding than Jonah's rescue at sea. Jonah was sinking towards death, but before Christ, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Jonah's rescue was like a resurrection. Our rescue is literally a resurrection. By grace, we've been raised up with Christ to newness of life. Do you see it, friends? Through Jonah, God is giving us a fresh appreciation of what he does in the salvation of sinners. It's so unlikely that it's unforgettable. A great fish obeys the sovereign command of God and saves an undeserving sinner. Who could have planned such a thing? Only God. Even more, who could have done such a thing? Only God. Who has determined to be gracious. To whom He will be gracious. So verse 17 is abrupt. When you're reading through the Bible, when you're reading through Jonah, verse 17 is just an abrupt interruption, but it's abrupt with grace. And therefore, we should... Perhaps pause here and just wonder at the God who would do such a thing. Even so, we can't stop with wonder. God's grace always calls for a response. And as we enter chapter 2, that's what we see with Jonah. Having been delivered, the prophet now prays. And it's here we see the second picture of God's work. The kindness of God's discipline. The kindness of God's discipline. Verses 2-4 to are the first stanza of Jonah's psalm. And the focus here is on God's deliverance in the midst of Jonah's distress. But what's really striking, friends, is how Jonah acknowledges God's role in orchestrating that distress. Notice what Jonah says in verse 3. For you, the you is God, for you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, if you remember from chapter 1, it was definitely the sailors who hurled Jonah into the sea. But here in chapter 2, Jonah says it was God who brought this about. He even says these were your waves, God, your billows. They came to do your bidding, Lord. You see, Jonah recognizes the hand of God In his distress, on some level, Jonah sees that the Lord brought this storm in order to discipline him. This too is the mercy of God, friends. God could have left Jonah to Himself. God could have allowed Jonah to just wander away in disobedience and spend his life frivolously in Tarshish, never to be connected to God again. God could have done that. But in His kindness, God pursued the prophet. He brought the storm As a means of discipline. As a means of mercy. Now, was it severe mercy? As C.S. Lewis once said, yes, it was definitely severe mercy. It was a pretty serious storm. But it was mercy nonetheless. Wouldn't you rather hear the voice of God in a storm than not hear His voice at all? It was mercy nonetheless. And still the mercy continues. Notice the ultimate effect of God's discipline in Jonah's life. Notice verse 2. I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Again, think back to chapter 1 and the numerous opportunities that Jonah had to pray. Did he do so? Did the prophet pray in chapter 1? No, he didn't. Not when the storm came. Not when the sailors were afraid for their lives. Jonah didn't pray. But now, here in chapter 2, Jonah finally prays. But you have to catch what brought the prayer about. It was the experience of sinking under the severe hand of God. You see, it took being tossed into the sea to bring Jonah to pray. It took this experience of God's discipline, God's severe mercy to bring Jonah to his senses. This is astounding, friends. God could have allowed Jonah to sink to his death and there would be no objection. But in His kindness, the Lord would not let Jonah go even if he had to use a storm to get Jonah's attention. And therefore, Jonah can have hope even as he is still in the sea. Notice verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. If you remember, Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of God. He wanted to get away from the Lord. But here in the heart of the sea, Jonah finally sees how awful such a fate would be. Friends, there's nothing worse than being separated from the presence of God. And so God uses the storm to give Jonah a little taste of what that would have been like for him. And then through the storm, God brings Jonah to his senses, and Jonah again prays, and amazingly, God answers Amazingly, God delivers Jonah and he once again believes that he will worship God in the land of the living. Please don't miss in verse 4, friends, that Jonah is still in the sea. He's, He's still in the belly of the fish as he's singing this song. And yet, he believes that God will surely restore him. Jonah's confidence is in the same God that he once tried to escape. It just took a storm to bring it to his Senses again. This is the kindness of God, friends. This is how God works. And it's a kindness of Him that He would work this way. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning, that is, you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning, but you know that you've been running from the Lord. Perhaps there is something you've been hiding some front you've been putting up or some masquerade that you've been a part of. But deep down inside, you know that your heart is far from God. And perhaps in His severe mercy, God has allowed you to taste some of the bitterness that hiding from Him brings. Perhaps God has given you just a little bit of a storm. If so, friends, I hope you see God's kindness in doing this. It's better to hear God's voice in a storm than to not hear it at all. I hope you recognize that while God's hand may sometimes be heavy, it's always for your good. God pursues us so that we might return to Him. If you belong to God through Christ, the Father's love will not let you go, just like we sang earlier. But that love is so strong, He will discipline you even to save you. And so, if that's you this morning, if you profess to know God, but you also know that you have been running from Him, I hope you will hear the exhortation from Jonah's life. God disciplines us in order to save us. He disciplines us because He loves us. It's better to hear God's voice in a storm than to not hear it at all. He will give you a taste of where rebellion leads in order to return you to Himself. And so, if you've been running from God today, the response that God's Word is calling you to is repentance. Even now, in the depths of whatever God has brought upon you, repent. Acknowledge where you have turned. Look again to God and His Word and confess that He is God and you are not. Listen to Jonah. He cried out in prayer and God heard him. He will do the same for you, friends. Even in discipline, God shows His children kindness so that we might return to Him again in repentance and in faith. The second stanza of Jonah's psalm takes us deeper into the character of God. Verses 5-7 through seven give us the third picture of God's work. And it's the depth of God's mercy. The depth of God's mercy. Again, the focus is on God's deliverance in the midst of Jonah's distress. Jonah really makes the same point as in the first stanza. There's not a, not a different point, but there is a unique emphasis. Notice the vivid language in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Friends, that's a very detailed description of drowning, so I'm told. But more than that, it's a recognition that Jonah has reached the bottom of his downward spiral. Remember from chapter 1 how we noted that Jonah went down to Joppa and he went down into a ship and then he went down to sleep in the cargo hold? Remember that from chapter 1, that spiraled downward, down, down, down? Well, here in chapter 2, Jonah reaches the bottom, so to speak. He sinks almost to the ocean floor. Notice the, that phrase, the roots of the mountains. He's tangled in the seaweed like chains pulling him down. He's near the point of death. In fact, notice Jonah's reference in verse 6 to the land whose bars close forever. That's a poetic description of what the Old Testament calls Sheol, what we might call the grave. In the Old Testament, Sheol was the place of the dead. And it was believed to be found at the bottom of the sea, where it was like a prison with bars that would shut you in forever. So, for an Old Testament Israelite, this is the lowest you can sink. This is the lowest you can go. Near the gate of Sheol. And that's what Jonah envisions as he sinks beneath the waves. He's near rock bottom. Jonah's as good as dead. But once again, Jonah's psalm returns to the merciful grace of God. You see, it's never far from Jonah's mind. When you taste of God's grace, you can't go very long before you break out in praise. Notice the end of verse 6. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. So Jonah was going down, 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 near even to the point of death. But then by grace, God has raised him up. That change of direction from down to up, that change of direction is a miracle. And it's a miracle that mercy accomplishes. But what I want us to catch, friends, is the place of God's mercy. Where did God's mercy reach Jonah? At his very lowest near the point of death, near the bottom of the sea. When it seemed Jonah could go no lower, God rescued His prophet in mercy. Even the depth of the sea is no match for the immeasurable mercy of God. You know, we read Psalm 103 earlier in the service. And in that psalm, David celebrates that God's steadfast love is higher than the heavens. That's actually a repeated emphasis throughout the Bible. Isaiah 55, Psalm 47, Psalm 108. All through Scripture, God's love and His mercy are extolled as higher than the heavens. But Jonah's psalm kind of rounds out the picture, doesn't it? Not only is God's mercy as high as the heavens, but it's also as deep as the grave. Deeper even than death. Listen, that's good news, brothers and sisters. There are some deep valleys in the Christian life, aren't there? I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. There are some deep valleys in the Christian life. And some of those valleys are deep because we made them so. They're our own doing. We can relate to Jonah then. In fact, we're meant to relate to Jonah. We also know what it's like to spiral downward. We know what it's like to sink near the bottom. We know what it's like to live in the depths. Perhaps we even know what it's like to feel as though we're as good as dead. What hope is there for people like us? What hope is there for those who are sinking? Well, there's hope in the mercy of God. Mercy so deep it can reach God's people even at their lowest. Praise God His mercy is as high as the heavens, but praise God it's as deep as the grave too. Listen, one of the evil ones' most sinister lies is that you are too far gone to repent. You've strayed too far, you've sunk too deep. God has no use for someone as wayward as you. You've gone you've gone too far. You've done too much. You're too deep in this muck in the mire. Why repent now? God doesn't use people like that. That lie is a favorite tool of the evil one. But friends, Jonah tells us the truth. Jonah tells us that God's mercy reaches as high as the heavens. Yes, praise God. But it's also as deep as the grave. So today, if you hear God's voice, turn to Him and trust Him and believe that this is who He is. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light. Resolve today to hear God's Word and respond in faith. You see, that's the whole point of God's mercy, friends. God's mercy reaches us at our lowest, but He doesn't then leave us there. He raises us back up through repentance and faith so that we might walk in a way that pleases Him. So It's such an encouraging picture. Of all the places in the Bible to be encouraged, it's at the bottom of the sea with seaweeds wrapped around a dude's head and you say, yes, there's mercy for me. That's how you're supposed to read this passage because that's what God wants to say to wayward folks like us. Jonah sinks near the bottom and even still, God's mercy reaches him At the lowest and through Jonah, God is saying to us, He's perhaps even saying to you, there's mercy for you too. And so we come to the end of Jonah's psalm. Verses 8 and 9 are the final stanza. Verse 10 is the the conclusion there where the fish spits him back out. But verses 8 and 9 are the final stanza of the psalm. And it's here we see the declaration of God's greatness. The declaration of God's greatness. You'll notice that Jonah draws a contrast between those who worship idols and those who trust in the Lord. Verse 8, indicts the idolaters. Listen again to what Jonah says verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So, Jonah's point is pretty straightforward. Those who worship idols will be left alone in the end. Idols cannot deliver you. The mercy of idols doesn't reach as deep as the grave because idols aren't real. There's no deliverance for those who trust in false gods. These so-called gods can save no one. But those who trust in the Lord are different by God's grace. Notice verse 9. But I, will, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Here, Jonah reminds us that God's grace always demands a response. And the right response to God's grace is faithfulness and devotion to Him. God saves us by His grace so that we might follow Him by faith in that grace that He's given us in Christ. God's grace always demands a response. We turn from sin, and we give God what He deserves. Our faith, our obedience, our worship, our very lives. That's the response Jonah envisions in verse 9. And it's one that he's now willing to give. And yet, there's some irony here, isn't there? I was telling someone this week, "I, I really would like to preach the whole book in one sermon. Because here in the middle, you don't get the full picture. There's some irony here with Jonah. Think back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, who was it that offered God sacrifices and performed vows to him? It wasn't Jonah. It was the pagan sailors. Remember that? Verse 16, they offered sacrifices and made Vows. At first, they trusted in their idols, but through the storm, God revealed Himself and they entrusted their lives to the Lord, at least during that storm. And it's only here in chapter 2 that Jonah follows in their footsteps. You see, it's perhaps an ironic reminder to Jonah of the truth that he's still learning. God will be merciful to whomever He will have mercy, including pagan sailors and wayward Israelite prophets. And maybe Jonah doesn't yet see that. But it is Jonah's final confession that should get most of our attention. Notice the last line in Jonah's psalm, verse 9. This is the theological heart of the book. It actually stands at the very center of the book. It's the theological heart. It's simple but powerful. Jonah exclaims, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friends, that's a declaration of God's sovereign greatness in salvation. The Lord is free to save whom He will save. For salvation belongs to Him alone. God can deliver pagan sailors from a storm. God can spare a wayward prophet from death at the sea. And God can even have mercy on wicked Ninevites. Salvation belongs to God. And therefore, God is free to show mercy and grace to whomever He will. Jonah knows this now By experience, he was sinking towards death. He had no hope to save himself. But God and God alone raised him up. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The question, therefore, is whether or not Jonah truly believes what he says. It's one thing to declare God's mercy and grace as long as it applies to you. But what happens when God extends that same mercy and grace to others, even to your enemies? Will you praise Him for that? Will Jonah praise Him for that? That's the question that remains to be answered as we keep going in the book. But for now, friends, let's rejoice in the truth that Jonah does declare. Salvation indeed belongs to the Lord God. It's the heart of this book. Salvation belongs to God. And here's the key. Here's the takeaway from today's sermon that you have to get in order to understand the passage. Salvation belongs to the Lord and we would not want it any other way. We need to recognize that if salvation does not belong totally, exclusively, and absolutely to God, then there would be no salvation. If salvation somehow depended on us, then we would still be hopeless and helpless before God. Just think of Jonah's life. Could he swim himself out of the deep? No. Just as Jonah could not swim himself back to life, so also we were not able to raise ourselves up to new life with the Holy God. We needed God to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We needed Him to reach into the depths of our darkness, even into the grave of our dead hearts. And we needed Him to raise us up by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jonah's history in the sea should illuminate our testimony of faith, brothers and sisters. Jonah's experience of grace is a shadow and an echo of the Christian's experience in Jesus Christ. Now, even as I say that, you may be thinking, that seems like a stretch, Jeff. How can we jump from Jonah to the gospel? They're so different. And that's a good question. And Jesus himself answers that question in Matthew chapter 12. The Lord Jesus connects Jonah's experience in the sea with Jesus' own work of salvation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus Himself is drawing a connection from Jonah to the Gospel. It's actually a striking point on Jesus' part. There's a lot to note from what Jesus says. And we're going to say a good deal more about it next week in Jonah 3. There's a lot to note from, Je- from Jesus about Jonah. It's a lot of J names. A lot to note about Jesus. You know what I'm saying. There's a lot to note. But for now, it's enough to say that Jesus is telling us this. The God who worked so miraculously for Jonah has done something even more astounding in Jesus Christ. The God who has worked so miraculously for Jonah has done something even more astounding in and through Jesus Christ. Jonah was raised from near death in the grave. Jesus was raised from actual death in the grave. Jonah was raised as an illustration that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus was raised to prove once and for all that salvation belongs to Him. For Jesus is Lord. You see it, friends? It's not merely the... It's not merely the heart of the book of Jonah. It's not merely the center of Jonah's theology. It's actually the refrain of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And for those who know Jesus Christ by faith, that biblical refrain is our testimony as well. We will thankfully not spend three days and nights in a fish's belly, but we do thankfully know the same God who spared Jonah with such grace. And praise God, we know Him through Jesus Christ men have been looking so hard at the great fish, they failed to see the great God. Well, I pray that you've seen God this morning, brothers and sisters. I pray you've seen Him in the grace, in the discipline, and in the mercy that He showed to Jonah. But most of all, I pray that we see God in the resurrected and reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, it's remarkable that God would raise a man after three days in a fish's belly. It's remarkable. But it's remarkably good news that God would raise His own son after three days, to new life. And it's because of that son that we can join Jonah in saying, I trust with truthful hearts, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to know You through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that when we were at our lowest, Father, indeed, even dead in sin, You would work by Your grace to grant us life, to raise us up, with Christ and to seat us with Him in the heavenly places. When we were content to continue going downward, Father, You were merciful and gracious to raise us up with the Lord Jesus. We do declare, God, that salvation belongs to You and to You alone, and we would not want it any other way. We pray, Father, that You would help our hearts to be confident in You and not in ourselves. We pray, Father, that we would even hear the reminders that You've given to us Here in Jonah chapter 2, You indeed have given us many benefits, Father. And though we are prone to forget, and we are, we are grateful for Your Word that reminds us. Thank You for the picture of grace and mercy and the kindness of discipline that we see here with Jonah. Would You help us to believe it, Father? And to follow You by faith? And would You help us also, God, to open our mouths and to declare the unthinkable good news that salvation belongs to the Lord. And would You be pleased, God, to use us to bring that salvation to those who have yet to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.